Olivia here. I want to tell you about a new podcast from Axios called One Big Thing. It's hosted by Nyla Budu and features interviews with leaders you know or need to know in business, politics, and culture. Each week, you'll hear one big conversation on the trends shaping our world from people like Surgeon General Vivek Murthy, technology reporter Ina Freed, and chef and humanitarian Jose Andres. So go ahead, listen to One Big Thing on your favorite podcast app. New episodes drop every Thursday. Unexplainable is a science show about everything we don't know. Like, we don't know how bikes work. Get out. Come on. We don't know where the moon came from. Holy cow. You've touched the moon. This is incredible. We don't even know what life is. No one has been able to define life, and some people will tell you it's not possible to. Unexplainable takes you right up to the edge of what we know and keeps going. New episodes every Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to BioEats World, a podcast at the intersection of bio, healthcare, and tech. I'm Olivia Webb, the editorial lead for Bio and Health at A16Z. In this episode, we talk to Eric Topol, the founder and director of the Scripps Research Translational Institute, and a cardiologist, scientist, and author who has published several best-selling books on the topic of AI and medicine. We'll link his books and some of his other work in the show notes. Joining us in conversation are Vijay Pandey and Vanita Agarwala, both general partners at A16Z Bio and Health. We talked about the short and long-term future of AI and medicine, how AI could change the patient and provider experience, and whether data or policy is more likely to hold back these advances. Let's get started. Dr. Topol, thank you for joining us. So we wanted to start with a really big question. What does a future with a fully deployed AI healthcare system look like? Well, it doesn't look like what we have right now, I can assure you. (laughs) If you're talking about long-term, you're talking about uh, a massive uh, data resource where you have digital twin capability and anybody who has a condition, whether it's at risk or actually manifest, they find their multiple twins uh, and they can determine the best preventions, treatments, outcomes from that, which is altogether different than the way we do it today, which is through clinical trials, if we have any, where a, a few people benefit out of every hundred and we give that treatment to the other 90 some people. So we have the word precision medicine, we haven't even touched the surface of it yet, where we can go once we have data resources built that are going to take a while to get there. I think it's so fascinating that that you're indexed on kind of making everybody part of an ongoing clinical trial of sorts, and you're coming at it from the clinical development lens. That's super fascinating. I see lower hanging fruit, even just in how we get standard of care deployed. There are so many patients who can't access what we know to be evidence-based care. And so to me, I love an AI, or sorry, a fully deployed AI healthcare future that superpowers our existing providers in every aspect of care. So I want my doctor to be a superpower. I want my nurse to be a superpower. I want my bedside nurse to be able to 
use AI to communicate more effectively with my family at home so they know what's up while I, you know, I'm sick in the hospital. I want my oncologist to be able to apply AI to my pathology specimen and figure out, you make a better choice. But at the center is still our existing providers. That is still, to me, the center of this futuristic healthcare system. But they're just all smarter, better informed. There's so many different dimensions to the answer. That's certainly a near term. Uh, Of course, you know, what I've written about quite a bit is achieving this deep medicine state where we get the gift of time back and we have that patient-doctor relationship, not just restored, but made better than ever. Talk about superpower. I mean, that's a really vital uh, relationship that's been eroding for decades. But there's many different facets to this. Uh, I couldn't agree with you more. I mean, if you think about it, there's like all these different axes we can go on. So one axis you can go on is like uh, the different types of healthcare. So you can think about how we develop diagnostics and drugs. You can think about how we handle standard of care, how we do imaging. Just it's obvious since all these things are data-driven that AI would play a role in each one of them. And so that's one sort of different horizontals we could go after. But then there's actually different sort of a vertical levels of AI getting stronger. You know, it's, it's, it's simple things at first. And I think we're already starting to see some examples of that. And then you move up to where maybe actually you really give the superpowers that uh, Manita is talking about to doctors allowing them to spend more time with patients and, and so on. And I, I think the the dream that many of us have is actually one step beyond that into true superpowers where uh, AI can actually have capabilities that are better than the best individual doctors and can scale. And so now we're talking about sort of a, a equivalent of like getting the best top 20 doctors in the world to look at your case, talk about it for hours, agree on it, and then, and then you get treatment and everyone could get that treatment in, in principle. Yeah, I, I think that uh, the ability to use machine eyes is what we is the here and now. Yeah, uh, for, particularly for images, whether that's you know radiologists, pathologists, uh, to, across every domain, there's a big step that can be made. We've not even implemented that yet, no less all these other things. So we're still at an early uh, point in the transformation of medicine using AI. The one thing that hasn't really been cracked well. Um, speaking about horizontal and vertical aspects, is bringing all the different data layers together. So whether it's, you know, the genome and the electronic health record and the images, but also sensors. When you start adding in high-frequency data collected through multiple sensors, our ability to do that right now with the current models uh, isn't there. I do think now that we're moved on to foundation models and can deal with a trillion parameters and then some, yep. we're going to get there. But, you know, the whole idea that we'll have these kind of AI with unsupervised or self-supervised learning to function, as you say, VJ, I, mean, I think we're, we've still got some advances to be made from where we stand right now in terms of where deep learning was and where foundation models are going. What does this look like from a patient perspective? And Vanita and and Eric, you're both practitioners and you've seen a lot of patients. So a patient in this system, what does it look like? Are they getting yearly exams? What changes, what stays the same? The way medicine was as a one-off when you might go and have a a checkup once a year or when you had an intercurrent problem, you should change where you're having your data uh, being assessed on a continuous real-time basis. That is, ultimately, we'll get to this virtual health coach or medical assistant. 
which is integrating uh, data all the time and giving feedback to the person who wants it. It first started uh, as far as FDA clearance with a smartwatch, atrial fib, arrhythmia detection, quickly moving on to skin lesions, rashes, cancer detection, a screening, ear infections for children, urinary tract infections, kits that would diagnose that accurately. And the list is going to go on to include all common conditions that are not life-threatening. So patients are going to derive considerable benefit soon if they haven't already, with these very diagnoses that they can get doctorless screening at low cost or, or no cost even, that's pretty exciting advance. I think there's also a lot that could change from the patient's perspective in moments of high acuity and severe illness as well, where we often assume that we know what to do or that, that okay, fine, that's the situation where there's convergent evidence. But that's just not true in so much of clinical medicine. So many of the medi- you know, decisions that get made in a hospital or in acute care settings are based on intuition, on physicians' anecdotal experiences. They're all well-intentioned, but they are often lacking in really robust input data streams that are truly specific to the patient in front of you. I still have this example etched in my memory, but you know, we had a patient some years ago whose prostate cancer in a rare kind of case presented with DIC, uh, which can happen every now and then as the presenting kind of bizarre side effect that's disseminated intravascular coagulation. And it's a very difficult to treat inpatient emergency. And even in kind of an academic setting with a relatively common cancer type, but a strange presentation, we were left kind of drawing for the best possible evidence available in anecdotal case series, you know, PubMedding, you know, should we try to stop the bleeding? Should we try to enforce, like, which side of the DIC spectrum should we treat? What are the right therapies? What's safe? What's safe to do with chemo? And what we needed was the ability to query our own experience, other institutions' experience, and ask, like, hey, who else had this happen? To Dr. Topol's point about a digital twin, there would have been so much to learn if we could have simply queried our own historical data in real time at that moment to guide decision making. And so even in the, I couldn't agree more in the preventive care world, but even in acute care, I think the patient's experience could be much, much better. Actually, I think uh, as much as uh, we agree about the future, maybe the interesting questions are also, what does the next five years look like and, and how do these things get incorporated? The technology is doing these cool things, but like, um, why isn't radiology being read by deep learning? That's the technology we were talking about three years ago, but it's not there. And and so I think we have these parallel arcs of talking about all this amazing technology and then how does it actually get into the system and how does it actually uh, get used by doctors, used by benefiting patients and so on. And um, we have to bet which one's going to hold us back. I'm a little worried it's going to be the latter, not the former. Yeah, there's no shortage of obstacles uh, to get this moving in a time frame that you and I would think is acceptable. Yep. So for one, medicine as a community is very resistant to change. And it's sad because even when change can make a big benefit for patients, some of that is conservatism, some of it's paternalism. And here it's even with AI um, threat of losing you know, one's role in medicine. It's surprising yeah. in fact. But then you go beyond that. So right now to implement 
AI in any healthcare system. It requires adopting purchasing algorithms typically from companies that have never published their data, uh, that it's proprietary algorithms. So, so the, the, the medical community has never seen the data and it, there's a trust issue, right? And lack of transparency. And is like 5% of all the algorithms that have gotten FDA 510K or clearance or approval, formal approval, uh, have actually had a, a publication, no less a preprint to look at what they found. So that doesn't, in, that doesn't engender uh, rapid implementation either. And so five years in the medical community is, you know, that's a, a week or two, <laughs> you know, it's a whole different look. What what does it look like though? Like what, if we were to try to accelerate things, does that look like talking to the AMA, the FDA, academic medical centers? Like what does it look like? What would be your game plan to try to bring the future a little faster? Well, we have to tack all these levels. I mean, one is, you know, we have to get the companies that are bringing these to commercial level to be willing to share important aspects so that there's confidence built. It, 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 when, whether it's radiologists or whoever uh, to actually use it, because um, that's where the biggest jump is right now, at least, is with images. Then we have to uh, come up with ways uh, to get the medical profession up to speed. They don't really understand AI. They have as much understanding of AI as genomics, which isn't good. We need to increase the comfort level. Uh, and I think those physicians particularly younger ones who've gotten more uh, experience, facile, not necessarily, you know, could to do much, but at least understand some of the nuances. That's been very helpful. And we haven't even initiated any kind of education. It's not even part of the curriculum in medical schools. We have 150 medical schools in this country. There isn't any yet that's established getting students grounded on aspects of whether it's deep neural networks or language models, as you said, or other points here. So we have a lot of things that are going to help hold this up, unfortunately. On the one hand, I think the computer science aspect of this is going to be just moving along at a, at a, at a remarkable velocity. But on the other, the medical community is kind of be stuck. And it's tricky. Like, for example, pathology. Why would you not want to have slides on whole slide imaging? <laughs> so that you can do all yeah. this stuff, but it costs a lot of money to convert to uh, WSI. And so most pathology departments and health systems are unwilling to put up that upfront investment. So there's some specific issues that are domain dependent as well. that have to be confronted. Although that's one of the things COVID helped with. You, could you expand a bit there? Like, what do you mean? Uh, lots of hospitals did make those investments because their pathology teams wanted to be able to work remotely slides remotely, review digitized slides. So there was increased uptake of that infrastructure that you're describing, right, to enable WSI. But we only need a few more pandemics. Is that what you're saying? Well, it took a pandemic just to even recognize there's this thing called telehealth, you know, and that, that kind of came into play. But one of the things that I think uh, is particularly exciting about AI we haven't yet really touched on is the whole and how the pandemic has helped to usher that in is the hospital at home. So there isn't any reason that that shouldn't be the norm for people who are not ICU or uh, post-op out of the operating room, 
uh, or, you know, in the emergency room, but all the rest of the people would be perfectly fine at home with validated trials and evidence that monitoring them did not lead to any reduction of safety. In fact, probably likely enhanced it, no less the cost, no less that we could give people data plans, broadband data for years for the cost of <laughs> one day, one night in the hospital. Yep. So this is going to be a big movement, hospital at home. But we have a little problem here again, because we have this lobbying force called the American Hospital Association. And so do you think they want to lose hospitals as we know them today? So we're not in a very good position, unlike virtually every other industrialized country that doesn't have fee-for-service healthcare and a hospital association that is a big lobbying force. So it sounds great. It is great potentially, but it won't happen well in the U.S. based on our, our, our structure. Well, uh, do you think you make a bold prediction then it would happen elsewhere first? Do you think AI yeah. will impact Europe first or how do you see it playing out? Yeah, well, when I did the UK review, the, when I got the government commission to do that and we delved into all the ways that AI could be deployed to change the workforce. We, you already, VJ touched on one, which is why do we have all these backroom office people, coding people? Why do we have all these people when we need frontline healthcare workers? to actually take care of patients. And it's all the growth in the healthcare has largely been not frontline uh, care, you know, providing care for patients. They have the same type of uh, workforce issues that we have, where healthcare has become the number one sector uh, of all in terms of um, personnel uh, and, and workforce. So the idea here is they want to be the AI leader in the world and they have a better suited need and structure and as does europe as does many many countries in asia we're just not well positioned you know most of these countries that have the proper alignment of structure also have put in resources to to develop ai for this purpose yeah are you saying they're ahead of us because of a national health system and a national health record system specifically right right you know a stated goal with funding and priority of of making some big moves in AI to to basically take advantage of the workforce issues that have become impossible to keep up with. Well, and would you say that it's just the U.S. system's sort of resistance any new technology that is coming up that's going to slow down AI, or is there something specific about AI that we're running into? Well, I mean, we talked about some of the specific things about the transparency, the trust issues. Yeah. That's, of course, everywhere. That's not U.S. specific. But there are there are some things that we unfortunately are malpositioned. But it seems like in, in some ways, I think we're malpositioned for any new technology, right? I mean, well, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, maybe except through various pockets that are mirror single payer like Medicare Advantage or something like that. Yes, and that will probably be a likely if if we can get CMS and their innovation moving, uh, that would be a likely test ground for this. Yeah, uh, because to, in order to do hospital at home, you've got to go through the validation trials to prove that whether it's for heart failure or pneumonia or every medical diagnosis, it doesn't require an ICU. Whether it's safe to do it, and in fact, ideally, uh, Im improved outcomes without exposure to nosocomial infections, hospital-acquired infections, and all the other things that happen. Well, Vanita, how do you think, what, what can we do to speed this up? Or is there, are, are, we, are we doomed here? 
here and we have to wait for Europe to lead the way. The challenges are real that we both just highlighted. I think there are also some really nice glimmers of hope related to some creativity on the reimbursement front. As you said, Dr. Topol Telehealth is a good example, but hospital at home reimbursement models, I think today, do not create a sustainable infrastructure to en masse shift large amounts of inpatient hospitalization to the home, but with some additional improvements and technology enablement could. And then the reimbursement rails could absolutely exist to support fee-for-service or value-based hospital-at-home reimbursement structures for technology companies and providers working together to create really tightly integrated systems. I think like today, the math doesn't work as far as I understand for both health systems. The setup for specific remote monitoring is there and the economics are indisputable once it gets proven, right? Um, There isn't a better way to cut costs than having no one get admitted to the hospital. Um, So uh, you're right. It's possible that we could come up with an end around here, but it wouldn't be, you know, there are other places that everything's in alignment, right? Everyone's working towards the same goal because there's no competitive perverse incentives. Yeah, I guess where I was going is that I do think the hospital at home reimbursement, there is still a staffing model that's required. I think most technology companies haven't fully figured out how to truly take care of the acutely ill at home. And as a result, I think actually in some ways what we need is for the reimbursement regime for hospital at home to not be so wildly divergent from the reimbursement regime because otherwise... The health systems we have, the hospitals we have, the staffing we have can't quite flex into that home setting without some economic, you know, significant economic incentive to do that and to take the incipient risk that definitionally does come with with transferring, you know, completely to the home setting. So I think all these things have to kind of work out, but I see a lot of signals that both the technology and the willingness to transact in creative ways is growing. And our ability to hopefully also, you know, collect and share the right data to inform smart triage of which patients are actually suitable for home is also going to get better. I think it's actually a good example of not only do we need the AI to run the home-based sensors, but specifically that triage step of deciding, just like today in the ER, you know, Dr. Topol, we send patients to observation or we send them home or we send them for admission, if there's a fourth option, hospital at home, actually knowing which patient is suitable for that will take a lot of judgment. Yeah, well, of course, we like to get them even before they come to the emergency room. But, you know, the pandemic did bring this uh, to the fore because, as you know, uh, many health systems in this country couldn't accommodate people with COVID. And these were people who were uh, short of breath. Oximetry wasn't bad, but it wasn't, you know, normal. And they said, we're going to send you home with this oximeter and we're going to monitor you at home. There were no algorithms. There was no validation. It just was done. And some very large health system did this, of course. So that was done out of need and at some scale in this country by the seat of the pants sort of thing. And those were people who either came to the emergency room, but there was no no rooms at the inn. Or they never came, they just called their doctor and the doctor said, oh, you just stay home and we're going to get you some monitoring uh, capability. 
I was thinking about like how, what I would suggest another wedge possibly would be is to go around the system and have direct to consumer care. And, yeah. you know, it's not going to be direct to consumer, like open heart surgery at home. That's going to be <laughs> something simpler earlier. And that perhaps those are wedges where, especially uh, post COVID people are thinking about their healthcare more than ever, that maybe some direct to consumer play with AI uh, might be a, a toehold into this. And maybe eventually if it's first direct to consumer, then it becomes uh, sold to enterprise and so on and, and industrialized from there. But uh, I think it's going to have to be a different approach than what we're going to see in single payer countries. I, I, I like your idea, VJ. I mean, that could be a way that it gets inroads. Yeah. Is that you say, would you like to be admitted to the hospital or would you like to be monitored at home? And uh, I think a lot of people, we know the answer, right? Yeah. So maybe let me offer, a, I'll throw a controversial bomb in here. Good. So you made the point, okay, yeah, it might take too long to change CMS reimbursement structure to support, you know, a new reimbursement regime and completely new rails for hospital at home. I agree. And I would make the point that if we really want hospital at home to take off, we need to reimburse hospital at home on the exact same reimbursement rails that wow. we reimburse hospital at hospital. And it does, it sounds crazy because clearly the cost structure and principle may be much lower, but I actually think that is what will be required for our health systems today to say, yes, dear pyelonephritis patient, we are going to treat you at home. It's safe enough to do at home. And we're going to forego your two to three day hospitalization, you know, at our, at our hospital. And like for the, for the math to work out for everybody to be aligned on treating that patient at home, bringing them appropriate resources, creating a high safety standard, adopting expensive technology. Like I think we might need to think about how we get comfortable with something closer to that. So like an inpatient, outpatient, you know, something where they're, the hospital is still managing it or something like that, or or who's getting paid that we rate? We do need a care team, right? Yeah, I mean, you do need a care most team. Most of the conditions we're talking about will require a care team. And so the best incentive I think you could potentially give a health system is to actually lower their cost, uh -huh. but still um, provide attractive reimbursement. Yeah. I mean, if it's actually better care, uh, maybe that is interesting if you can uh, especially avoid readmissions and so on. Well, I mean, one crazy uh, sort of future that maybe it's not that crazy to imagine is if you take everything we've been talking about and add it together, we're talking about other countries having the technology, rolling it out effectively, improving their healthcare and democratizing the very best doctors to everyone. And we're stuck with what we have, some version of what we have now. I wonder if that would be the catalyst to push for value-based care. You know, I mean, I let, you had a creative idea about, you know, just go right to the consumer to do this. And a lot of the things we're talking about, that's one strategy that might work. But, yeah, we we uh, are not as well positioned as we should be. We'll get there eventually, I'm confident, because, it, you know, these are all things that are going to have strong evidence eventually. Yeah. Well, the future I was describing, the grandiose way of summarizing is AI doesn't just save the patient, it saves the system. If it forces us into value-based care. That's a good way to put it together, really. I was expecting us to agree that the rate-limiting step was data, not policy, but it sounds like we've landed on policy being more of an issue at this point in time. Yeah, anyone want to try make a counter-argument? No, I don't think we should assume that, you know, we still have issues with text, unstructured text, 
speech. None of this is being is perfect. Like, you know, in COVID, there were 2,000, now probably almost 3,000 papers written about how you could do a CT scan of the lung, you could diagnose COVID and a chest X-ray and all these other things. And none of them were decent models. Not a, not a single one was a well done piece of evidence. Uh, they were called Frankenstein uh, papers uh, by the summary of evidence. So, you know, we have to do better uh, with these models, the evidence base, the data. And as I mentioned, one of our limitations, even to go ahead with a hospital at home concept, we don't have an ability right now, based on just the, the convolutional neural networks, recurrent networks, the net, the deep neural networks that have that we've gotten accustomed to, they aren't going to do it for hospital at home yet. Uh, there's just too many different layers of data, too many challenging layers, as I mentioned, multiple sensors with continuous data to deal with yet. You know, one question I had is like, uh, we've been talking a lot about the the far future and, and the big changes, but I wonder what people think of in terms of what are they going to be the big wins that do come in the next, let's say, two, three, five years. Like, do, do you think that we will see things, uh, see AI integrated? And so where, do, where would you put your bets? One thing I think we will see much better accuracy of image interpretation. Right now, there's 20 million serious medical diagnostic errors a year in the United States. So there's lots of room for improvement. I, I hope uh, that we could get to keyboard liberation quickly, yep. which would be one of the most welcome advances for both clinicians who feel like data clerks who are totally, you know, lost the morale and, and, um, part of the burnout crisis, as well as patients. So what does that look like that instead of typing, the doctor is talking with the patient and uh, something is listening like a medical Alexa, Dr. Alexa? Yeah. Well, not only that, but the, the good synthetic notes now are doing not just the notes, they're doing all the uh, ordering for whatever, you know, scan labs, yep. prescriptions, and uh, also coding, all of it. The only time you, you would use the screen is say to show the patient, you know, like the results of their scan or, you know, something like that. No, I agree. I mean, I think in the near term, all of these, we can sort of bucket them into the workflow and administration category is just, there's like enormous potential. I think it's already, not so, it's not so much a future state to Dr. Jopal's point. There are pockets where this is happening. There's lots happening in the revenue cycle management and billing world. There's lots happening in the communications world, right? Yeah. And um, from a clinical decision-making standpoint, I'm curious to see whether AI is going to make the most impact in preventive and wellness care, initial presentation of common chronic disease, or in like very acute critical care and, and, and more the hospital at home and hospital settings, but I kind of have a little bit of a hypothesis that it might be bimodal, that it might be the two ends of the spectrum where AI gets deployed first, high cost, high severe acuity care, and then a lot of really creative applications in the continuous quantified self uh, yep. types yep. of applications that are also really interesting and where nobody else has the bandwidth to do the analysis and only AI will. <laughs> Well, yeah, no, I, I, I love that uh, sort of uh, paradigm. And I think the other idea I'd throw out is that uh, a lot of technologies sometimes need some way to sort of cold start. Uh, I'm just making this up, but imagine something like an AI concierge doctor 
where it's, you know, conscious medicine is something that's paid on top of your regular medicine anyways. Uh, people do that for better care and so on. You can imagine that part since it's already out of pocket now uh, paid and it supplements your your existing doctor, much like concierge supplements your existing doctor. And it's going to be therefore probably not for everybody. That's more for the 1% to start. But that that could be where the technology gets developed and matured. And as it starts to mature and, and also decrease in cost, it could be rolled out much more broadly. Yeah, I think there's something to that, VJ. The only problem is it's, it's going to be seen in a very negativistic way by making inequalities worse, worse than they already worse. are. Yeah, yeah that's but, true. You know, it may, that may be the, the natural flow. Yeah. I think the long term is it'll make everything very democratic, but like uh, there's all these sort of headwinds systematically towards that. So it might start off making it worse, but actually that may be the argument for any new technology anyways, you know, that um, it, it hits certain systems first and then it gets rolled out. I've seen a great example of how AI uh, is working most in particularly low-income countries. Yeah. So um, smartphone ultrasound. What's happening there is incredible with AI. So as long as there's you know broadband, a person who has no capability of acquiring, let's say, an echocardiogram, as long as the person can put the probe attached to the smartphone on the left side of the chest, the AI will say, we'll move it up or down, move it clock or counterclock. And as soon as like you're depositing a check, mobile check in your bank account, it auto captures the video loop desired, no. does auto labeling and interpretation. So you're getting an echocardiogram at high resolution, AI acquired, AI interpreted in places that had no capability through a smartphone. It's incredible. So um, I have seen examples of how this can be done to take technology, level the earth, right? It's exciting. Yeah. You know, a, a classic uh, example often discussed is uh, India with landlines versus mobile and mobile basically just leapfrogging over what would have been a ridiculous amount of infrastructure on the landline side. You can imagine that this may play in Algus roles. Yes. Well, I was worried we were going to end on a sad note. So thank you for, for bringing it home at the end there. Thank you for joining BioEats World. BioEats World is hosted and produced by me, Olivia Webb, with the help of the Bio and Health team at A16Z and edited by Phil Hegseth. BioEats World is part of the A16Z podcast network. If you have questions about the episode or want to suggest topics for a future episode, please email bioeatsworld at a16z.com. Last but not least, if you're enjoying BioEats World, please leave us a rating and review wherever you listen to podcasts. Please note that the content here is for informational purposes only, should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security, and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any A16Z fund. For more details, please see a16z.com slash disclosures.